Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome again to Hawaii Kai Church. It's so good to see all of you here this morning to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Uh, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, can be found on page 861 in the Bibles under your seats. We'll be studying Luke 5, 27 to 32 today, <clears throat> which is the story of Jesus calling Levi the tax collector to be one of his disciples. Again, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, page 861. But before we read our text, uh, would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we do thank you again for this morning. And we thank you, God, that you have given to us your word that we might know you, that we might come to understand who you are and understand ourselves better, our desperate need for you. Lord, I do pray that this morning, even as your word is opened and read and expounded upon, God, I pray that it would be your spirit uh, working in and through each person's heart that is sitting in this room hearing my voice, that they would hear your voice, Lord, that they would understand because it would be by your spirit moving within them to draw them to truth, to draw each one of us, Lord, to a deeper understanding. Help us, Father. We need you so desperately. And so we thank you for this morning. We look forward to what it is you have for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, says this, <clears throat> After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, over the past few weeks, as we've been going verse by verse through the, uh, the gospel, according to Luke, we have witnessed Jesus teaching and preaching with great power and authority. And at the same time, he has been performing miraculous works revealing his power over the demonic realm, over the natural world, over health and sickness and disease. And last week we saw him healing the paralytic who at Jesus' command was able to get up and walk home. But more important than any of these miracles, Jesus was showing the people that the main reason that he had come to earth was to forgive sins. He was showing them that more than their blindness, more than their paralysis or leprosy, the worst and deadliest problem that they had was their sin. And he was showing them that this sin problem was universal, that they were all sinners, including the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. He was showing these religious leaders that they too were unrighteous, and in need of forgiveness. And this is one of the reasons why the Jewish leaders began to despise Jesus. Even as he was performing these great, miraculous signs and wonders among the people, they were, there was growing animosity amongst the Jewish elite towards Jesus. 
You see, the Pharisees took great pride in themselves as being the ones who followed all the rules and regulations and rituals of Jewish tradition and law. In their minds, they were not like other men. They were above them. But Jesus wanted the Pharisees to know that they could never be good enough. They could never tithe enough. They could never fast enough. They could never follow their rituals enough and avoid unclean things enough to wash away the stain of their sins. Jesus was showing them that no matter how righteous they thought they were, they were, in fact, sinners like everyone else. And this is a truth that is at the heart of all Christianity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, you know this. Christianity is not a religion for righteous people. The Christian church is not some kind of posh social club consisting of only those who have passed the goodness test or who have scored high on the morality scale. And I'm sure you've heard this before, that the church is more like a hospital for the sin-sick. But unless you realize just how sick you really are, you will never set foot in the hospital. That's why, as we're going to see in a moment, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's trying to show the Pharisees, the Jews, he's trying to show all of us that we are sick, that we need a Savior to help us. We need to be forgiven. In our fast passage this morning, Jesus is going to make it abundantly clear that he came to call all sinners to repentance, all sinners, not just the upper crust kind of sinners, not just the Hawaii Kai sinner. Jesus came to seek and save the worst of the worst. Look again at verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, to a 21st century American, these verses probably don't raise any red flags. Reading these verses today doesn't have the same impact on us as they would have had on a first century Jew. A tax collector sitting at his tax booth being called by Jesus to become one of his followers seems pretty innocuous, pretty tame to you and me, doesn't it? I mean, he called fishermen, and now he's going to call a tax collector. No big deal, right? Well, not quite. You know, we may not look forward to walking into the IRS office and talking to an agent about our taxes, but the minor trepidation that we might feel about doing something like that cannot be compared to the disgust that a first-century Jew would have had towards the tax collectors of that day. You see, a tax collector was one of the lowest of the lowermost rungs of Jewish society. They were despised as traitors to the Jewish nation, for they were collecting taxes for an oppressive Roman government. The tax collectors would pay a fixed amount for a franchise to be able to collect taxes from the Jews. Anything that they could collect above that fixed amount was pure profit. So as you can imagine, there, this led to some considerable abuse. 
Tax collectors were notorious as dishonest cheats and evil extortioners who took advantage of their position to line their own pockets at the expense of their own people. They made themselves rich at the expense of their fellow Jews, and so they were despised. According to Dale Ralph Davis, the tax collectors were collaborators with the Romans and tended to be shysters and cheats. Someone like Levi would be disqualified from being a witness in court and would be excommunicated from the synagogue. Therefore, when Jesus calls such a low life to follow him, it constitutes a small scandal. And yet, in spite of their wicked reputation, Levi the despised and hated tax collector, pretty much the worst of the worst kind of sinner, is exactly the person Jesus calls. And I think Jesus is trying to make a point here to the Jews and to all of us that there is no sin so vile, there is no sinner so far gone that Jesus cannot save him. And why is that? Because our forgiveness, our salvation has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with how bad we are, but rather it has everything to do with Jesus and what he did to save us from our sins. The blood that Jesus, the perfect, holy Son of God, shed on the cross, his death, was the payment that would atone for all of our sins, including those of the traitorous tax collector. Jesus willingly gave his life as a substitute for sinners. He chose to die in the place of the sinner, to pay the death penalty that we deserved for our sins. Jesus' sacrifice can wash even the worst sinner clean when he or she repents and turns to him and trusts in his death as payment for our sins. That's true for you, and that's true for me, and it's true for any sinner, no matter how bad they may be, because it's all about Jesus. And so when Jesus goes to Levi and says, follow me, he is inviting the worst of the worst sinners to repent and turn from his wicked ways. And this is exactly what Levi does. He drops everything and follows Jesus. You know, Levi could never go back to his tax collecting again. For as soon as he left his franchise, some other lowlife would have jumped right in to take over his lucrative business. When Levi walked away, he left his very high-paying job forever. There was no looking back, and I doubt Levi ever did. There were no regrets. Now, there is a lesson here that we should not miss, and it's this. For those who choose to follow Jesus Christ, you must know that it comes with a cost. When Jesus calls you to follow him, we do so exclusively at the cost of everything else. As Jesus says in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
This call to deny ourselves, leave everything and follow Jesus is actually quite common throughout the Gospels, so much so that we can quite easily say that this was the expectation of our Lord. If you look back just a few verses at Luke chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, Jesus calls Peter, James, and John, and they immediately leave everything to follow him. And then later in Luke 9, starting in verse 59, it says, To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Then later in Luke 14, Jesus says these startling words, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't believe for one moment that Jesus is telling us to hate our parents, our wives, or our children, or that he is expecting us to turn our backs and neglect our families if we choose to follow him. After all, Scripture is very clear that we are to honor our parents and that we have a responsibility to look after our families when they need us most. And so what is Luke 14 actually saying? Well, the Greek word for hate in Luke 14 is the word miseo, which means to detest on a comparative basis, meaning that you renounce something in favor of something else. In other words, comparatively speaking, your love for Christ must be even greater than your love for your parents, for your wife, or for your children. We are called to love Jesus above all else. And he's not just talking about our family relationships. Later in Luke 18, we see the same principle in the story of the rich young ruler. When this young man comes to Jesus and asks him, what does he need to do in order to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells, them, tells him, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the rich young man heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. This rich young man was a very moral man. He obeyed the law, he lived a good life, but in the end he chose his riches over the call to follow Jesus. And because of this, even though he might have been a good person, Jesus basically says it's impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God. Now, does this mean that everyone who desires to follow Jesus must first sell everything they own and give it to the poor? No, not everyone, but maybe for some, for those who are putting their wealth before Christ, for those who may love money more than Jesus. You know, the particulars of, the, particulars of the cost of following Jesus are going to be different for each person, but the principle is going to remain the same. You cannot follow Jesus and hold on to this world at the same time, not even a part of it. 
You can't have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. This is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And as Ligon Duncan puts it, there can be no competitor to Jesus in your life. Now please understand, we are not talking about a works-based salvation where you have to sacrifice and give up everything in life in order to earn your salvation. That is not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is trying to show us, and this, I believe, is the main point of our passage this morning, what he's trying to say is that our greatest need in all the world is that our, we are lost sinners, that we are dead in our trespasses and, and sins, and that we are condemned to an eternity in hell. There is no hope for us, not in our riches, not in our good works, not in our families. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. Until you understand that, until you realize how desperate you are because of your sin, you will never realize how desperately you need Jesus Christ. There is nothing else in this world that you need more than Jesus. Not your riches, not your good works, not even your family. Jesus is our only hope. And please don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus just wants us, just wants to take away all of our worldly possessions so that he can make our lives miserable enough so that we'll turn to him, that is absolutely the farthest thing from the truth. Jesus is not taking away everything from you. Rather, he wants you to let go, to show you that you are holding on to the wrong things. He wants you to know and experience that following Him is far, far more rewarding and valuable than anything you could ever find here on earth. As He says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Ask any person, any person who truly loves Jesus Christ and has been walking for, with him for a good amount of time, and you'll hear the same thing. Following Jesus is greater than any treasure this world has to offer. The Apostle Paul knew this well. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so the question some of us need to be asking ourselves this morning is this. What are you holding on to in this world? What is holding you back? What are you putting above the call to follow Jesus Christ with all of your heart? Are you like the rich young ruler? Or are you like Levi? Levi, 
the despised tax collector recognized that his greatest need was not in his wealth, but it was to repent of his life of sin, to receive forgiveness, and to follow his Lord. Levi found his treasure in Jesus Christ, and with great joy, he gave up everything, all of his worldly possessions, to follow him. Let's move on. Look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And so Levi makes this life-altering decision to follow Jesus Christ. His heart is filled with joy as he understands that he has been given a new lease on life. So he throws this huge party, a great feast at his house, and a large company of the only friends he knew at that time, tax collectors and other so-called sinners were the invitees. Those who are not averse to associate with the dregs of society. And all of them, all of them were reclining at table with Jesus. Now close your eyes for just a moment and imagine this for just a second. Jesus, the Holy Son of God, reclining at a table, eating and drinking, talking with, laughing with, fellowshipping with the low lives of society, the tax collectors and other sinners. To fully understand the magnitude of what Jesus was doing here, we need to understand what was meant when you would go to someone's house and share a meal with them. In those days, in that culture, to eat with and share fellowship over a meal with someone was not simply a display of friendship, but also of mutual acceptance. So when Jesus shares a table with sinners, he is shattering and breaking down long-established barriers of propriety and proper, respectful conduct. You just don't do that kind of thing, Jesus. One commentator put it this way, no act apart from participation in the actual sinful deeds of the guests, could have broken the wall of separation more dramatically. Jesus is trying to show the Jews, their religious leaders, and even us today, that the door to the kingdom of God has been blown wide open. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Everyone who would repent of their sins and trust in him, even someone as vile as a tax collector, Jesus will receive them. He will eat with them and he will accept them. And as radical as this was to first century Jews, it should speak to us today as well. Can you can you picture yourself reclining at the table with sinners like these to bring things a little closer to home? Imagine being invited to a large gathering of drug dealers, prostitutes, pimps, extortioners, thieves, homeless people, and junkies. Would you be willing to go? If not, why not? We'll probably never be invited to such a gathering. That's not the challenge that most of us face here in Hawaii Kai. Rather, for most of us, our challenge is going to be, come in the form of choosing to spend time, sharing a meal, associating with an unbelieving family member or a non-Christian co-worker or neighbor. They may not think like us, talk like us, or act like us, and so our natural tendency is to just not hang out with them. Now, I know that's not all of us. Some of you are really, really good at reaching out and sharing the gospel 
with non-believers. But for some of us, we'd rather not hang out with non-Christians, and we definitely don't want to share a meal with them. And yet, isn't this exactly what we see Jesus doing in our story this morning? Jesus had nothing in common with tax collectors, nothing in common with prostitutes, nothing in common with the sinners of his day, and yet there he was. Why? Because it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. We must never forget that we were all once in the same situation, sick, lost, dead in our trespasses and sins until Jesus came to save us. We cannot be like the Pharisees, spending all our time bemoaning and complaining about and condemning and judging the sinful actions of sinful people. Rather, we need to be making an effort to be with them, to tell them the good news and to introduce them to our Savior. As Bob Deffenbaugh says, we must learn to have contact with sinners in such a way as to be comfortable with them and they with us without conforming to their ungodly ways. This is what our Lord did, and this is what our Lord calls us to do as well. And so Jesus, without condoning or agreeing with or joining in with the sinner's lifestyle, is willing to associate with them, to rub shoulders with the unclean, to share fellowship with those who are despised, and to recline at table with the sinner. And boy, did that not sit well with the Pharisees. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, rather than just rejoice that a sinner like Levi had repented from his sin, the scribes and Pharisees instead judged Jesus for sharing a table with such a sinner. The scribes and Pharisees were convinced of their own righteousness, that they were set apart and better than other people, especially this filthy tax collector. Now, these were very learned men. They were well-respected by their community. The Pharisees prided themselves on how well they followed all the rules and regulations of Jewish law and their own man-made traditions. The scribes, well, they studied, they taught, they interpreted, they transcribed scriptures meticulously. And so in their minds, because of all the good things, all the good works that they did, that they were the righteous ones, they were the pure, they were the good people of society, unlike these sinners that Jesus was eating with. The scribes and Pharisees were so intent on following man-made rituals in order to give the appearance of righteousness that they failed to realize how truly unrighteous they were because their hearts were so far away from God. It never crossed their pride-filled minds, that they, were, they, they too were sinners in need of forgiveness. And so rather than show mercy to a sinner like Levi and rejoice when he repented, they were instead filled with contempt and judgment. How can you recline at a table with a sinner like this? The scribes and Pharisees were blind 
to their own hypocrisy. And for this reason, they were condemned. You know how ironic it is, how ironic it is that the ones who are closest to the kingdom of God are the ones who are the most pitiable, the most wretched, and the most sinful people. For a wretched sinner like Levi didn't need to be convinced that he was a sinner. He wasn't under any illusion that he was somehow right before God. And so he was one step closer to understanding the true state of his desperate need. And therefore, he was one step closer to receiving the good news that Jesus came to earth to call sinners to repentance. Meanwhile, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite of their day who preached about the kingdom of God day in and day out, these were those who may have seemed like they had it all in this world. They were the rich and self-reliant, the so-called good and self-righteous. Yet these were the ones who ultimately were the furthest away from the kingdom of God. They were the healthy and good people. and They didn't need a physician, and therefore they could never hear Jesus' call to repentance. Now as we close, let me just remind all of us that human beings are still the same as we were 2,000 years ago. We haven't changed. We can still be just like the Pharisees and struggle with the same pride, the same desire to make ourselves look good on the outside while neglecting true godliness on the inside. And the lesson every Christian can learn from the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees is that God wants more from you than just outward acts of obedience and pretend righteousness. God desires people with broken and contrite hearts, truly repentant hearts that recognizes our desperate need for forgiveness. Because it is only as we realize our desperate need that we will turn completely to Jesus Christ and hold on with all our might to the reality that He is our only hope for forgiveness and salvation. Our money won't do it. Our good deeds won't measure up, and even our family members cannot save us. He therefore becomes our treasure, our pearl of great price, for which we will confidently give up everything without remorse, without ever looking back, being assured that nothing else in this world will ever compare to knowing and following Jesus Christ. Levi, the wretched tax collector, recognized Jesus for the treasure that he was, and he gave up everything to follow him. Levi, also known as Matthew, was used by God to pen the opening book of the New Testament. Levi, who was once condemned as a sinner destined for hell, is right now with his Lord in paradise forever. Brothers and sisters, let's be like Levi. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer?
Father, again, we do thank you. We thank you for your word, which is so clear and which helps us, Lord, to see you for who you truly are. Lord, help us continue to show us, reveal to us, Lord, our deep, deep need of salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, so that, Lord, you would help us to hold on to and cling on to Jesus with all of our might. Help us, Lord, I pray. We need you and we love you so. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.